Hi and welcome to another edition of Authorised. My name's Kevin Hillier. This is the show where authors get the opportunity to speak. We read their words, we love their words, we're captivated by their words. Uh, so much power in their words, but there's also so much power in the uh, in the way they go about it and the chance to have a chat to them about what they do. Today we've got a terrific Australian author for you and a great Australian story and he's told it so very, very well. I'm sure you'll be captivated uh, by it. Uh, but a reminder about our partners in this podcast and that is the CS Consulting Group. They're terrific business people and uh, they're in the business of helping you with your finances. Now, if, uh, for instance, you're in business and you uh, get together with CSCG, you can, uh, uh, peace of mind is something that we all want in every aspect of our life, but you really do want it in your financial part of your business, don't you? So they're the people to go and see. Uh, if there's been changes in uh, in your industry, uh, changes in legislation in your industry, changes in taxation in your industry, they're across all that. They've got experts in the field, experienced experts in the field. And they're only too happy to have a chat to you about all of that. Uh, you can contact them very easily. It's cscg.com.au. That's the website. Or pick the phone up and have a chat. Uh, they're really good people. It's 03, it's 9974 Always available for a chat about uh, your accounting and your taxation situation. Now, today we have Gary Linnell. He's written some great books over the time, books about football, books about convicts, and uh, in this latest book called Moonlight, he tackles what is basically a tragic love story uh, and also, I guess, in many ways, the old Bush Ranger story too, so there's a bit of that in there as well. Captain Moonlight, it was the end of the Bush Ranger era. Uh, Gary's uh, done this magnificently, uh, and it is a, a story with lots of uh, twists and turns, and you'll find out about them right now as we speak to our guest on Authorised, Gary Linnell. So, Gary, you're a storyteller yourself, as we know from the, the other books that you've written. But why did why did this one? Why did Captain Moonlight uh, grab you? Look, the, the stories of the Bush Rangers have always captivated me. I think when I was a, a young kid growing up in in Geelong in Victoria, I used to devour those books that used to come out in the 1960s and 70s about you know the almanacs of, of the Bush Rangers. Yeah, and I'd often go through them, flick through the pages, and of course there was the usual ones like Ned Kelly and Captain Thunderbolt. Um, and you'd also have a look at the photographs of men like Mad Dog Morgan, who, when he was uh, shot by the troopers in, I think, 1865, they propped him up on a, on a, a cot in a small uh, hut in the bush and got a photographer to come in. And they used uh, toothpicks to prop his eyes open. Oh, God. So it looked like he was delivering. So they, what they did uh, back in then was to take these photos of these uh, dead bodies as trophies, but also to let everyone know that they'd hunted them down and the, none of the myths and legends that surrounded some of these bush rangers could then continue. Um, and so I, I, was, I was really fascinated by all of this and occasionally I'd come across the mention of Captain Moonlight and the fact that he'd robbed a, a bank at Mount Edgerton just outside Ballarat and um, that he'd staged the massive siege at a, a station called Wantabadgery Station near Gundagai that had led to the death of uh, one of the troopers from Gundagai. But there was never a great deal of information, and he didn't seem that charismatic. And a few years ago, I sort of started doing a little bit more reading about him and came across this incredibly complex character. He was unlike any other oh. of the other bushrangers that we'd ever seen in Australia. Absolutely. You know, I think I made the point in the book that, you know, most of our bushrangers uh, came from, had Irish origins, and so did Captain Moonlight, but most of them were born on uh, dirt floor shacks. You know, they were pulled out of their mother's wounds. They weren't really educated. They were pretty rough, pretty tough. Um, they'd had a few wrangles with the troopers or what they were called the traps back then. 
uh, and they're always on the wrong side of the law. Captain Moonlight, though, he was born Andrew George Scott back in uh, a small town in Northern Ireland, and he was grew up in a family with a fair bit of wealth and privilege. His father was a justice of the peace. They had quite a high standing in this town, and then the family lost their fortune, so they were forced to emigrate, and they went to New Zealand in the early 1860s. Uh, back then, the New Zealand government was very keen to bring in as many you know, white settlers, white colonialists as they could because they were having a lot of ongoing wars with the Maori. Yeah. And Andrew George Scott, by the time he was 18 or 19, signed up with the Waikato militia, fought the Maori, was injured several times and uh, suffered a couple of gunshot wounds, one to his leg that made him uh, limp uh, and his right foot turn inward after that. Uh, and then in 1868, he came to Australia and that's where the real story began. Yeah, I mean, I was I was aware of the name, but had no idea of the story behind him, let alone you know the New Zealand part of it. And then and then what he did when he came to Australia, he, he was quite the uh, the the rascal of his time, wasn't he? He was. Um, look, they'd always said that the family back in Ireland there was a bit of uh, madness, a bit of bad blood <laughs> running through them, and it skipped generations here and there. But it certainly ended up uh, in a very large volume inside the blood of Andrew George Scott because. He was noted, he was a charming man, he was well-educated, he could quote the classic poets, he'd read all of the great literature, the Greek and and Latin, he'd been trained as a cadet with the British Navy uh, for over a year and a half. Um, He could sail, he was a fantastic man on a horse, a brilliant um, shooter with a gun. When he came to Australia, he became a a lay reader or a lay preacher for the Anglican Church and he went out there and gave all these fiery sermons. Uh, he was a brilliant speaker, and he captivated these huge audiences at church every Sunday morning. But there was a dark side to him as well. You know, he, he just couldn't help himself. He always found trouble. Yeah. Back by 1869, when the Mount Edgerton Bank was robbed by a masked man in a black crepe ma- mask, he left behind a note saying, you know, he'd been robbed by Captain Moonlight. Now, Captain Moonlight was a term that he'd been jokingly referred to during his time in New Zealand. It was also a long-standing traditional name among the Irish um, in Ireland when they were fighting against their English overlords. And some of them are called Captain Rock. It sounds like a Marvel comic book, doesn't it? It does. And, and <laughs> another one, Captain Moonlight. So he used this sort of pseudonym. And, uh, you know, he was eventually caught. But he was such a complex bloke uh, because of this education, because of this, you know, he could read the Bible and recite long passages from it. But he was also attracted to other men. Yep. And when he was finally captured um, and imprisoned for 10 years in the Pentridge Stockade, at that time, in the early 1870s, was one of the worst, most gothic and dark prisons in the world. He came face to face with a young man called James Nesbitt. Now, Nesbitt was only 23, 24 years old, uh, jug ears, a little dimpled chin, uh, young looking. He'd been running with some of the young the gangs around Carlton and the northern suburbs of Melbourne. His father was a petty thief, uh, an alcoholic. He used to bash him all the time and bash his wife and kids. So he just came from a home, you know, streets of broken glass, all of that. Uh, James Nesbitt has looked at this Captain Moonlight, this dashing, charismatic figure inside the prison yard, and probably found a, a bit of a father figure in him as well. And Moonlight was just so captivated by Nesbitt himself. Yep. And they formed this intense relationship. They were inseparable during their time in prison. And when they were both released, they joined up together. And unfortunately for both of them, only managed to spend about nine months of freedom together. 
before that fateful siege at Wanta Badgery. Tell us about the Wanta Badgery siege because it was uh, ultimately that was what uh, what brought Captain Moonlight undone, wasn't it? Yeah, look, it followed um, after he's released from prison and you know, Nesbit was waiting for him outside the, the prison gates. Moonlight decided that he'd go on a public lecture circuit, and you know, no other bushranger would have been able to stand <laughs> up in front of five or six hundred uh, people and charge a penny each and and get them to come and listen to him uh, go on for two hours. And, and I'll tell you what, Moonlight, he could talk. You know, he, he never met an audience he didn't like. <laughs> He'd just gibber on and, until there was blood pouring out of their ears. And he would give these lectures. And in Ballarat one night, there were more than 500 people who gathered at Unicorn Hotel to listen to him speak. And he always talked about the failure of the prison system and the fact that it should have been rehabilitating prisoners. And it wasn't. It was just turning out more and more criminals. This was his pet subject. Yeah, and he amazing. He could make a living out of it. Amazing that he was yeah. onto that at that uh, at that stage of, uh, of you know in the eighteen eighties. Goodness me! Many of the themes that come up in in, in Moonlight the book are, are sort of echo even now. You know, because you talk about eighteen seventy nine. Well, just before the Wanta Badgery siege, there'd been a, a young Aboriginal man in Mudgee who was sentenced to hang for the rape of an older woman. Now, it was all very flimsy evidence, and it looked like he'd just become a scapegoat for uh, someone else. More than 10,000 people in Sydney protested in the streets of Sydney against the impending execution. Um, the newspapers ran, ran sarcastic headlines to the government saying, well, you're going to hang him because he's just black, aren't you? Yeah. So you've got echoes of Black Lives Matter, yeah. even back then yeah, in the yeah. 1870s, and there was a real shift in public opinion. But Moonlight himself... You know, he did four or five lectures around Victoria and then found people were getting bored with it. He was no longer a celebrity. He'd gathered four young men. He always had this ability to attract broken young men to his cause. He said to them, we've got to get out of town because the police are going to keep harassing us, which they had been, and we'll go north. So they walked from Melbourne to the Murray River, followed yes. its path along towards near Gundagai, looking for food. I mean, this is a recession on them, so there were hundreds and hundreds of men who are going from farm to farm, town to town, looking for work and food. They finally get to the Wanta Badgery Station, which is one of the biggest sheep stations in the country. They're told it has a great reputation for looking after you know, travellers and, and, and people looking for work, but they're rebuffed. They're told to go away. There's no work for them. There's no food for them. Moonlight, who is a man who has this old code of dignity and honour, is embarrassed and ashamed, and he's been embarrassed in front of these young men who he said he would help find them work. And they're hardly bush rangers, these folks. There's kids from the city. Yeah. One of them's only 15, barely 15. They can't even climb on a horse. They retreat to the hills that night. It's pouring rain. They're starving. And the next day, Moonlight says, I've had enough. And they go into one battery and they hold it up. And they take, lay siege for the next 48 hours. They take up to 40 hostages during that time. And Moonlight becomes, you know, under pressure and under stress, that madness starts returning. And it's only, you know, his great soulmate, James Nesbitt, who manages to keep him calm all the time. But he threatens to shoot some of the hostages and puts them on mock trials and threatens to hang one. And then it all ends up in a very ugly series of um, showdowns with the troopers from Wagga and from Gundagai. One of the Gundagai troopers is uh, killed. No one still knows to this day for sure. Uh, from whose gun, uh, the bullet, who killed that trooper. Yep. Uh, but unfortunately for Moonlight, a bullet pierced the window and entered the temple of uh, James Nesbitt. The police officers who had just arrested Moonlight watched him as he sort of lay over the figure of Nesbitt and picked him up and he's 
started kissing his blood-smeared face uh, as though he could sort of try and breathe life back into him again. He was broken, heartbroken. Um, and we know all about this. Um, it's incredible detail, not just from all of the newspaper reports at the time, but because when he was taken to Sydney to Darlinghurst Jail, Moonlight was put in his death cell awaiting, and after his trial, awaiting his execution. And he wrote dozens and dozens of letters, mm. some of them to James Nesbitt's mother, which enclosed a lock of James's hair, where he professed his great love for James, his great soulmate, and kept saying over and over again that he wanted to be buried in the same grave so that they could sleep together forever. So he didn't know it, but the jail authorities were seizing these letters, and they kept them on file. And they weren't discovered until about 100 years later when some oh, researchers good. came across them. And so you can actually go to the state archives in New South Wales and request this big box of these letters. They're all on this old faded blue prison paper. And you can see this at times elegant hand of Captain Moonlight as he's writing page after page, you know, quoting some of the great poets, professing his great love for James Nesbitt. It's quite extraordinary. You know, it raises the hair on the on the back yeah. of your neck when you can actually see that he that was his hand that was pressing down on that paper. You know, it's a story where on the twentieth of January, on a mild summer morning in um, eighteen eighty, he walked to the gallows and was hanged by the New South Wales State Executioner Robert Rice Howard, who is another phenomenal character from Nosey the nineteenth century. Nosy Bob, who, um, yeah, he'd been a, he'd been a, a cab driver, what they called a cab driver, where he rode a, a horse and a cart and took people around Sydney for many years, including Prince Alfred at one stage when Queen Victoria's second son toured the colonies and he took him down to quite a few places of uh, houses of ill repute yeah. in, in, the, in the deepest part of Sydney. But unfortunately, one day for Bob, uh, one of the horses kicked out and uh, swiped his nose off his face and left yeah. his gaping big hole right in the middle of his face. So he's naturally called Nosy Bob. Yeah, of course. And he was one of the most reviled figures in the country. Not quite as reviled as Captain Moonlight was at the time. Yeah. Because during the trial, Moonlight's celebrity became national and went around the world for that. Uh, it was front pages in all of the newspapers from New Zealand to London and on the west coast of the US where they had their own problem with you know outlaws in the Wild West back then. You know, his notoriety just sort of seemed to increase and it was Nosy Bob in the end who had to put the rope around his neck. Mm. And that whole, when you talk about how the, the preparation in the book, when you describe the preparation they do for the ropes and things and the people stealing the ropes and they had to get another one, all those sorts of things that go on uh, uh, with that. It's quite a, quite a one of the most unwanted jobs I would have thought of all time and, and certainly had a, a massive effect on his family. Yeah, look, Nosy Bob, unfortunately... Um, Two years earlier, his wife had passed away, so he was raising four kids on his own. The hangmen throughout the centuries, they've always been um, outcasts of society because they are the bringers of death. And so with Nosy Bob, if you went to a pub in Sydney and had a beer, the publican would smash the glass when Bob had finished with it so that no other drinkers would have their lips tainted by the glass of of a hangman. And he was a unique character. He loved growing flowers. He doted on his children. He uh, trained his horse because he was no longer welcome at the pubs. He trained his horse to walk down to the pub in Campbell Parade with a big tin on its back and some change and the publican would fill up the tin with beer and the horse would amble slowly back to his house and deliver the beer without spilling a drop. Yeah. You know, he'd go fishing, not for whiting or snapper, for sharks. So he'd chuck throw a chunk of meat on a barbed hook into the 
into Bondo uh, Bay and uh, wait for a shark to take it and then use the horse to pull the shark out of the water. So, I mean, one of the most extraordinary characters <laughs> in, in the 19th century, along with Moonlight and the rest of them. But I certainly think, you know, I kept turning over page after page of some of the old journals of the time and the diaries of people and looking at the newspaper reports. I suspect the reason why we've never heard as much about Moonlight as we did about Kelly was A, Kelly had been notorious for so long. He was a genuine bushranger. He killed three policemen at Stringy Bark Creek in 1878. And there was a lot of uh, Irish support for him throughout country Victoria. And the myth and the legend just grew when he was hanged uh, in November 1880, 10 months after Moonlight was hanged. But I suspect also that because Moonlight was gay and it was the Victorian era, a very prudish sort of era where people didn't discuss sexuality or, or those sorts of things, much less a relationship between two men, I suspect that he was sort of gently moved aside in the pages of history and given less prominence by some of the Bush Ranger historians. He didn't sort of fit the romantic notion that uh, that is so colourfully painted of uh, the Bush Ranger era, did he? No, certainly not. And look, I, th- I think we've always had a, an issue in Australia where we've mythologised and lionised a lot of these Bush Rangers and held them up. I mean, the majority of them, 90% of them, were nothing but sort of crude, petty thieves. They weren't very smart. They rode horses. They never washed. Uh, they were pretty repellent people. And yet, because of the time, I think, because Australia and white Australia was only young, you know, it was still trying to shrug off its what it called the convict stain of its past, and they eagerly embraced these people as heroic figures because we didn't have any others. Who were they? You know, the country was too young. It was too, too young and hadn't, it didn't have the legends and myths that, say, in the UK, you had King Arthur and Beowulf around there and, you know, the Greeks had all of their, their hero, heroic figures. But in Australia, you know, it had barely been a century since the country had been settled by, uh, by white people. So there hadn't been enough time to establish a real you know, pantheon of legends. And so the, the bushrangers became our heroes for yeah. a while. Yeah, and uh, gee, the life expectancy of a bushranger wasn't terrific, was it? Most of them were lucky to get out of their 20s. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they obviously, uh, their diets were terrible anyway. But uh, there were no health and safety uh, officials back then, Kevin. So, you know, they, they, these blokes would sort of you know, engage in shootouts with traps. Quite often they were better armed and, and more well prepared than most of the police officers who were just never trained properly and never had the proper weapons. But over time, you know, you saw in the 1870s, it's a very unique period in, our, in, in the world's history. It was called the Second Industrial Revolution. In the 1870s, you had a bloke in a, in a, back shed in, in a farm in Canada called Alexander Graham Bell, who was tinkering with a little machine that he thought might be able to transmit the human voice using electrical pulses that later would soon become a telephone. Yep. Um, in America, you had a very successful inventor called Thomas Edison, who did already come up with the phonograph of the record player, and he was now uh, experimenting with a new light bulb that would last for hours and hours and hours. You had a bloke with a very drooping moustache over in Germany at the back of a shed who was tinkering with a two-stroke engine. He was Carl Benz, and he was inventing, on his way to inventing the very first motor car. So suddenly you've got the electric telegraph. It's replaced the bush telegraph. Uh, And suddenly the, the police can send messages to each other in towns that would have taken days or weeks to be sent and passed on. 
So there were fewer places for the bush rangers to hide. You know, they were running out of room. And by the time of um, Moonlight's capture and, and uh, soon after Ned Kelly's capture, that was basically the full stop, the end of the era for the bush rangers. Yeah. And the police don't uh, don't sort of come out of the bushranger era with any glowing kind of uh, reputation, do they? I mean, they, they were obviously very badly trained, if trained at all, and uh, and and under undermanned and under resourced. Yeah, and some of them had signed up because there was a sense of adventure. Edward Bowen, the the constable who was um, shot dead at Montebadri by by one of Moonlight's men, unless he was uh, hit by crossfire from another police officer, he w- he was. Uh, a bank, uh, an insurance clerk in, in London, yeah. and he'd come out seeking fortune and fame and adventure, and he joined the police force, gone to Queensland, um, hunted down and been involved in some pretty ordinary massacres of the Aboriginal people there, uh, and then had been shifted back after he was injured and um, went to Gundagai and had always told his friends that all he wanted to do was take on Ned Kelly and the Bush Rangers. That was his, his lifetime ambition. Yeah. Um, a lot of the others were, as, I, as we said, they're poorly trained. The colonies didn't have enough money to fund them properly with proper uniforms or even weapons. And they were just a ragtaggle sort of bunch of yeah. um, stragglers, a lot of them. A lot of them were well-meaning as well. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until those 1860s and 1870s, because of the bushrangers, that both the colony of New South Wales and particularly Victoria began to form proper police forces. So, I mean, the bushrangers have had an enormous impact on Australia. I mean, they, they, they've changed our notion of law enforcement, of capital punishment. And, and they also, because of their Irish roots, for many of them, they sort of exemplified, I guess, um, how two million Irish people left Ireland in the 1840s and 50s because of the famine, and they spread out right around the world mm. and forever altered world history. Yeah, they certainly did. It's a great story. I mean, great as in it's a fascinating story uh, with with so many layers and uh, you know p- uh, characters like Nosy Bob that, uh, that that you talked about. So what's next, Gary? I mean, you you started doing sports books and now you moved into sort of you did a, a book about William Buckley, the convict, and now you've moved into Bush Rangers. Where where are you heading next? Yeah, I've been, I'm working at the moment. I've just been um, doing some research and started writing another one on um, this bloke who was a Jack the Ripper suspect. Uh, back in uh, the 1880s in London, oh. and pretty ordinary character who ended up coming to Australia, and he paid several visits here. He had this unfortunate habit of marrying as many women as he could, sometimes all at once, other times, but then he'd also like to dispose of them by cutting their throats and burying them underneath the concrete slab in the home that he had rented at the time. He did it over in London, in Merseyside. He did it here in Australia. And, wow. Um, in 1892, he was hanged in Melbourne, 16,000 people gathered outside the prison for the hanging. He was known as the criminal of the century. And he was front page of the New York Times, the Times in London. People were obsessed with him. He was seen as the darkest, most ghoulish criminal the Western world had produced throughout the 19th century. And his life ended in Melbourne. So it's a fascinating kind of story. Pretty dark and gothic. Yeah. But there's lots of sort of interesting characters and a kind of sort of might be the last book I do in the 19th century, but um, <laughs> really fascinating period. I, yeah. I, what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to make Australian history interesting because I think everyone sort of regards it as pretty bland and vanilla and that we've heard it all before. Um, you know, it all began with, we were taught in high school, it all began with Captain Cook. Yep. You know, it was all about the British Empire and we just didn't seem to have that the sexy history that other nations seem to be able to boast about. 
And I think it. I think now there's a greater appetite for finding out exactly what went on. And when you have a look at the 19th century and what these people were like, I mean, the characters, the larger-than-life people who you know went on great adventures. Uh, it's just an extraordinary era, and yeah. it's you know played a key role in who we are today. Oh, no doubt about that. Moonlight's the name of the book. Gary Manol's the author. Thanks so much for your time, Gary. Appreciate it, and uh, look forward to uh, to uh, this uh, this other book. And uh, uh, until then, we'll uh, we'll enjoy Moonlight. So, thanks very much. Absolute pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. It's a terrific Australian story. Gary's a terrific Australian author and we look forward to uh, much more of his work in the future. Uh, And uh, make sure you check that one out, Uh, Moonlight. It's available through Penguin Publishing. So my thanks to Gary for his time and uh, for his great work. Uh, My thanks also to the uh, CS Consulting Group, who of course are our partners in this uh, production. Uh, Now, if you're looking for someone to help you out with your taxation situation, you're in business and you've got to that point where you you just need a little bit of help, These are the people you should be talking to. They know what they're doing. They've been doing it for a long time now. They're experienced in the field. They keep up to date on everything that's going on, so you won't miss a thing. Uh, So if your accounting needs are a little complex, uh, they can do that. If it's simple, they can do that too. Get in touch with them. cscg.com.au and the telephone number is 03 9974 Hope you've enjoyed this edition of Authorised. We have plenty more to come, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes with some great authors like uh, William McGuinness, Peter Fitzsimons, Monica McInerney, and a whole lot more. This is Authorised. My name's Kevin Hillier. Take care of yourself. <laughs>